0: We're going to move through this at a fairly rapid pace, so lace up your shoes, but I want to start in a boxing ring because I am old enough to remember and to have been in attendance in the original showing of the first Rocky movie. Don't bother to take out your phones and go to the IMDB, the movie database. It was 1976 and I was 14 years old. I wanted to be a boxer after that. It inspired so many people that our local recreation department took uh, one of our elementary schools that was no longer in use, went into the auditorium area and set up on the stage, set up uh, uh, a punching bag, speed bag, heavy bag, and some, some exercise area. And then on the floor, he actually set up a boxing ring. And I was there every day. I rode my bicycle across town every day uh, to uh, put the tape on my hands and began to punch that heavy bag. Now, it wasn't really the official heavy bag, it was actually two duffel bags filled with dry corn. But who to care? We got to punch it until our, our knuckles turned absolutely bloody. And then we got a chance to get into the ring. And we began to, to box a little bit. And I was a little bigger than some of the other guys, and I was a little chunky back then. Can't imagine that, can you? So I I had a little cushion, and I got in there, and and I was was beating up these other kids, and I thought, okay, boxing's for me. Here I come, Rocky Balboa, look out. Until until my friend Tommy got in the ring with me. Now, Tommy was a year younger than I am. It's not Tommy Moon. He could probably take me. But but Tommy, he had an advantage I didn't have. Tommy had two older brothers and a weight bench. And they were were freaks. I mean, they were were just muscle-bound. I mean, they just were. And I got in the ring with Tommy, and I'm going, okay, I got him. I got these other kids. And the first time Tommy punched me, I turned around and said, okay, I quit nobody ever hit me that hard. Now what's that got to do with anything? Well if you will watch any of these Rocky movies, maybe some of you have seen some of those, the fight is kind of the big climax of the whole movie but until then what's the movie about? It's about training, getting ready for the big fight and both in movies and in the real life for boxers they spend far more time training than they do in the ring now you could go out if you've got a boxer professional amateur really doesn't matter but somebody knows what they're doing and you just go and pull any you know big tough looking guy off the street and you bring him in and you put the gloves on his hands and you put him in that boxing ring he's not going to last that first blow to the gut is going to double him over he'll be on his knees gasping for air why because the boxer has been training To take those kinds of punches, the guy on the street has not. What's that got to do with anything? In 1980, four years after, in 1980, I started attending the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Some of you know my testimony. It's a beautiful place. Uh, I, I went there my freshman year. I was outside the scope of my parents' control. And somehow I felt like Jonah, if I had gone that far away, I must have gotten away from God too. And I began to live the way I wanted to live and it all came tumbling down and I finally got back in by the grace of God and had the opportunity to meet Jesus personally. And my life began to change and the direction of my life began to change. I knew God had called me into ministry. And so at the University of North Carolina, I switched over, Uh, you didn't have to declare a major, but I I, I switched over and I said, okay, I'm going to be a, a religion major at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Well, I don't know about if any of you have taken religion courses in a public university setting, but they're not like Sunday school. Not at all. In fact, as best as I can recall, because I also worked in the religion department, which later became the religious studies department, uh, in that in that setting, I do not think there was one evangelical Christian among the entire staff, all the professors and associate professors at the University of North Carolina. And you see all those those folks who'd been in Sunday school growing up, they thought when when I go to school and I'm looking for an easy A, then all I need to do is take an Old Testament survey or a New Testament survey class. And if I take that class, then it's going to be an easy A because I've learned all these stories. But you're not learning from your Sunday school teacher. And in fact, you're most likely not learning from someone who has the same regard for the Bible being God's word as you do. In fact, my New Testament professor was Jewish. He knew the New Testament probably better than I will ever know it, but he didn't believe it to be true. He didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And what, th- what begins to happen in a public university like that, um, they begin to teach from a perspective that, that you and I don't embrace. As a matter of fact, I had one professor in the, as we started this whole process, I had one professor who was teaching a course on the history of Israel and we began to study this and he began to talk about the things as we were going through them, looking for every place where it mentioned something miraculous happened, uh, he would have these recommendations as to what physically might have happened that could have possibly caused this. What, what can we, how can we explain this away in the physical realm that those primitive people might have thought was a miracle. And about halfway through the course, I raised my hand because by that time I'd become kind of brash, I guess. Uh, I raised my hand and I said, I just, Let me understand, the, I, let me just get the premise of the course. According to what you're teaching us, whenever we encounter a miracle in the Bible, it's not really a miracle but there must be some physical explanation for it or else it was inserted and is false. So let me get this straight. Whenever we read in the Bible that God intervened in the affairs of men, you're teaching from the perspective, if there is a God, then he doesn't intervene in the affairs of men. And he said, yes. That's true. If that is your starting place, then you're going to end up in a place that ain't Sunday school. You're going to end up with a view of the Bible that strips away anything miraculous, anything supernatural, and leaves it as nothing more than a collection of stories that might have some truth, and probably has a lot of error. Now, here's the deal. I went through that. That's that's the that's the 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 in college, that's the realm in which I studied and the philosophy under which I learned. I am grateful for those intellectual exercises that I was introduced to this, but I'm more grateful that God gave me through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship strong evangelical friends and small group settings that allowed me to talk through these things that through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship I was introduced to people who were just as intellectual who were just as learned just as scholarly but who came down on a different side They came down on the side of the Bible being God's word and being true and being a reliable guide for life. I'm grateful that there was evangelical literature that I could get my hands on to learn. We didn't have the benefit of the Internet. Al Gore hadn't invented it yet. Or if he had, it was in its infancy. We didn't have that benefit, okay? And so I was grateful that there was a Christian bookstore at at the corner on Franklin Street right downtown where I could go and and get literature and and, and read and, and begin to study these things because I was being challenged in a way that could have potentially undermined my faith. And if it wasn't for the exposure that I had to evangelical friends and evangelical literature and my own Eastern North Carolina stubbornness, it would have been very easy for me to be swept away by that and swept into that. And i got to tell you, there are a lot of young men young women who go to college, they think they're going to be an easy A by taking that New Testament, Old Testament survey course, and they come away... Doubting whether they can even trust God's word or not. In other words, when they get that first body blow, that first hard shot to their faith, they're not able to take it. They lose their wind. They hit their knees. The question we want to begin to answer today is this. Can you count on the Bible that you hold in your hand to be true, reliable, the Word of God? Can you count on it to be the true and reliable Word of God? A lot rests on the answer to that question. If these are just the words Men, Even wise, learned men, can we count on them to be sufficient to guide our lives? If these words contained in the pages of your Bible have not been preserved accurately, how will you know which is true and which is false? If the Bible is the word of God with a mixture of the words and the thoughts of men, how do you know the difference? How do you distinguish between the two? If you're going to stake your life and your eternal soul on the words of a book, wouldn't it be good to have confidence that that book is true, inerrant, reliable, trustworthy? Let's pray. Father, as we begin today, take a few steps into understanding how we can embrace your word as true, accept it as true. Lord, we pray that you'd give us wisdom. And Father, I pray very privately that you give me wisdom because I need it. So guard my words, let me speak truth without any mixture of error, make me honest. God, don't let me hold anything back that needs to be heard. May I be a source of encouragement in a world full of discouragement when it comes to your word. And may we together learn to love it, read it, internalize it, and live it out. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me share a few verses of Scripture with you to help us figure out where we're going. The first comes from Psalm 119. No, it's not verse 11, it's verse 160. Uh, Psalm 119, as you can probably see, is a very, very long chapter. Okay, Psalm 119, verse 160 says, The sum of your word, that is, all of your word, God, And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. You go to your refrigerator, pull out the milk. What do you notice on there? There's an expiration date. That says after such and such a date, you drink this at your own risk. Some of you risk it. You give it the smell test. That's okay. You can do that. But uh, it has an expiration date. It is going to expire. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Matthew 5, verse 18. For truly I say to you, said Jesus, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You and I, we're wondering what what this iota thing is uh, perhaps in uh, your version it may have jot and tittle and you're wondering what in the world is that these are the markings that occurred over the words in hebrew uh, the dots the the little dashes those type things and jesus said not even that will pass away and then we read this last week in 2nd timothy chapter 3 just looking at verses